Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to, in just a second or two, read from the last verse. It's page 816 in the church Bibles. And if you're new this morning, we have been working through 1 Corinthians and spent a lot of time in this chapter 15 on the resurrection. And now we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning on this 58th verse. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Verse 58, therefore. In other words, in light of the 57 verses which we've already went through, which have already been proclaimed, in light of the resurrection, my dear brothers, and we could just as equally say sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain is not in vain. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning, and may he grant us all understanding of it. So let's bow together, please. Just two scriptures from memory, Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. 2 Timothy 3, 1, and following, in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Father, as we come to you now in a state of complete dependence and personally, God, in much weakness, in light of your word read this morning, we ask that we would run and not be weary, that we would walk and not faint, that we would mount up with wings as eagles and grow in humility and usefulness as people who have been saved by your grace and called into your service. Only you, God, can accomplish this in our lives, and it is to you alone that we look right now. Speak, Lord, please. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. When the Lord Jesus Christ calls people to himself, he calls them into service. Indeed, with whatever capacity Christ has equipped us to serve in his church, every Christian in every age and stage of life is called to service. And keep in mind that in Bible terms, Service is not simply an introduction or a pathway to greatness. Service is greatness. So clearly in this last verse of chapter 15, the application of all that's been said in the previous seven verses brings Paul to a, a dominant conclusion. And the conclusion is simple. And the conclusion, in essence, is this. In the work of the Lord, if you would. It's the title of our talk. Keep on keeping on because it's worth it. Verse 58, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now in this, Paul is using his usual way to make application of Christian doctrine in our lives as he moves from instruction to application. And if you think about it, this is the way sermons ought to be preached. So just pay real good attention. Let me give you two examples. In Ephesians, Paul first writes three chapters of doctrinal indicatives, doctrinal truths, Three chapters of theology, revealed truth, which explains to us what God, by his grace, has done for us and done to us. He then follows those three chapters with three chapters of moral imperatives. In other words, it's imperative in light of this doctrinal indicative that we behave this way. Three chapters then of how we ought to behave as people who've been saved by grace. He does this because, listen carefully, right doctrine is joined to the hip with right living. Second example, in the letter to the Romans, 11 chapters dealing with gospel doctrine, 
followed by just about five chapters of dealing with all the anticipated implications of those doctrines in the Christian's life. In other words, he moves from indicative to imperative, from this is how you ought to believe to, okay, this is how you ought to behave. If you like, and this is good, Paul starts the mind thinking before he tells our feet and our hands that we must be serving. And this is good for us. Therefore, after giving us 57 verses of Christian doctrine about the resurrection, now verse 58 tells us all the implications of this doctrine and what they ought to be in our lives. So, he's not trying to preach anyone out of heaven. He's not trying to say, well, you're not working hard enough for Jesus, so what's wrong with you? He is simply calling the Christians to get after it and to stay after it because it's going to be worth it. And he's using doctrine and not guilt, not emotion, and certainly not envy. You know, who's the hardest worker for Jesus here to drive this truth home? He uses a rational argument, bodily resurrection for sure in Christ, to command and to excite and to direct our behavior. Think of it this way. We've spent weeks saying to each other that the resurrection is very, very important and we're the better for it. But even as you begin to process this and affirm its certainty, we're still left with this question. What are the implications of a bodily resurrection in our lives? Right? In other words, what difference is the resurrection making right now in my life? And if there is a difference that it ought to make, what kind of difference should it be? And how will I know if it is actually making that kind of difference? Well, this morning we're in luck. In verse 58, we have the exact answer from God through Paul's pen on what those implications should be. Kenneth Taylor paraphrases the verse, verse 58 in the Living Bible. So my dear brothers and sisters, since future victory is sure, be strong and steady. Always give yourself abounding in the Lord's work because you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever wasted as it would be if there's no resurrection. So this morning we have three pretty straightforward points. If you have a worship folder, you can turn to the back and see them. Who's he talking to? What must they do? Why must they do it? First of all then, who's he talking to? Well, again, if your Bible's open, you'll see he says, my dear brothers. And we could have just as equally said, my dear brothers and sisters, because the the Greek word there lends itself to family language. It's written in the masculine, masculine, but it's a dominant family term. And so while some would be tempted to pass over it so we can get to the good stuff, you know, stand firm and do all that kind of stuff, this, these few words in the beginning are very important for at least two reasons. First of all, it serves as a reminder to all of us that when we were brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it included Jesus' people as well. We were brought into a family. There's no lone rangers for Jesus. These Christians in Corinth, Paul is acknowledging, were brought into a family by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as you think about this, in our day of kind of increasing isolation and distance and a kind of tribal living that so many live under where people are connected and disconnected by tastes and bents that quickly change, families are increasingly broken, marriages are broken, people will be uprooted and planted and uprooted and planted so often in the way this economy works, it is a mercy to know that when God redeems a person, he brings them into a relationship not only with himself, but with other Christians, other people, if you would, who've been saved by grace. So, who are the beloved here? 
Who's Paul talking to? Well, he's talking to members of the family of God. He's talking to God's children. Now, that is the great privilege of belonging to a local church. That's the great privilege, actually, of membership. Right now, we are a visible expression of the family of God. That's the first thing. Second thing is in this phrase that he uses, this is not religious niceties, right? Paul's a religious man, so religious people should say religious things, right? We should always open up our letter with religious things and end the letter with religious things. No, Paul's not playing a con game here. He loves them. He has real feelings about them. They are his brothers and they are his sisters and they are dear to him. Well, says someone, they must have been the perfect church for Paul to love them. They must have been getting everything right and they must have been doing everything right and everybody was being good and no one was angry. It must have been some kind of church. But what do we know about this church? What do the first 15 chapters tell us? Well, we know for sure that they were making a hash out of their worship services and their communion services. They were snooty. They were selfish. Eventually, everything had to be their way in that service. That's chapters uh, 10, 11, and parts of 12. Sexual impurity was oozing into the fellowship. That's chapter 5. They were proud about the wrong things, and they were sleeping in the right things. And that's chapter 4. They were taking each other to court, chapter 6. They were worldly, chapter 3. They were acting like little babies. Again, chapter 3, they were jealous and they were gossiping. They were slandering behind each other's back. They were judging up, judging people. They had little groups. We don't like this. We do like this. And, and that's just part of it. They were theologically confused and therefore they were morally compromised. What a big fat mess. What a church. The perfect church to leave. The perfect church to say, God's not there, and I'm not going to be there either. I'm out of here. And then you drop your mic and you make your exit out of the door. But in this 58th verse, for all time we know that Paul refers to this weak, confused, worldly church as what? And you see it there. My dearly beloved brothers and sisters. Now what does that tell us? It tells us at least this. That authentic Christian love is not about emotions. It's not about getting everything right. Then I'll love you. It's about our wills. This is the family of God. And Christian love ought to be a servant of the will and not a slave to our emotions. Because I can guarantee you, if our love is the victim of our emotions and not the servant of our wills, every time the slightest thing goes wrong, we will be immediately ticked. We will immediately think, the worst. Now think with me. The Corinthians are sinning, but Paul's committed to them. They are failing, but Paul is committed to them. Why is Paul committed to them? Well, there's only one reason, because Jesus died for them. Jesus bore in his body the very sins that Paul is writing to. And Paul knows because they're Jesus people, they're his people. So it's not like Paul is, is liking what they're doing or he's going easy on them. Clearly, he's not. Paul is simply going theological on them, right? This is gospel. Here's the issue. These are my brothers and sisters, and I love them in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus bore their sins in his body just like he did mine. And you see, that sets everything straight. Can I ask you a question? Would you like to live in a family where the first time things go wrong, or the first time you do wrong, it's hell's bells. 
Would you like that? Would you like to live in a family where love is only based on your personal performance? So you got circus family, right? The kids are jumping through the hoop. The dad, mom jumping through the hoop. Everything's fine. Personal performance. Everything's fine. But if you don't go through the hoop, then we're going to have some words. Would you like to live in that kind of family? I would not like to live in that kind of family. That kind of family will put me in the hospital. Loved ones. Christian love is an act of the will. It is not the victim of our emotions. I will fail you, but you will fail me. So what are we to do? Leave each other? Of course not. Christ in us makes us better than that. God chooses his family, and if you're in his family, then you're family. Then you're family. There's a lovely little hymn that has the line at the end, carry to the table. Seated where we don't belong. That's the mindset of the Christian. Seated where I don't belong. So how in the world did I get there? Well, there's only one reason. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to family. Secondly, okay, what must they do? So Paul says, okay, family, in light of a bodily resurrection, here are the implications. Number one, stand firm. You see it there if your Bible is open. The idea is have an ever-increasing internal conviction of always giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord. So you're standing firm in it. In the Greek, it's written in what is called the present middle imperative. And this is why I tell you this. What Paul is doing, and if you think about it, actually God is doing this because God's the divine author of the Bible. God is calling for progressive, continuous, present action and staying put in the work of the Lord. So there's never a sense in the Bible that our work for the Lord can be a kind of seasonal occupation. There's no season which God sends to us that gives us a green light for such a thing. Now, and this is so important. Okay, how does this standing firm thing happen? Okay, how does it happen? Well, we know it doesn't happen when we get all emotional. We know it doesn't happen when we feel guilty and make empty promises. No, how does it happen? This is how it's happened. This is how it's given to us in chapter 15. When a true conviction, a resurrection is true, begins inside of ourselves, and it's put there on the basis of objective truth. Again, so this is not guilt. This is not bad theology. This is truth. And that truth becomes the fixed part of who we are in our lives. Under God, then, we stand firm in that truth. Okay, so let me give you an example. When God says, do not commit adultery, he clearly meant what he said. He, he said it right. Therefore, he removes all options. This is objective, fixed truth, true for all time. And the Christian then lets this true conviction be the banner that they live under. But if this whole adultery thing is only a matter of personal preference, or if it's only a matter of feeling or of circumstance or of opportunity, then that person can basically do whatever they like. And of course, we know, unfortunately, Christians and non-Christians, we do this all the time. We do this in marriage, but we also do it with money and worship services and service itself. So this God-given truth in those things then are not the fixed point in this person's life. So they become movable. They become seasonal. It's thought, and this is their line of thinking, that these are just personal preference. And so they begin to lead with themselves, and the thinking goes like this. If I feel like it, and I want to, I will. Or, if circumstances fit, then I will. 
But if they don't, then I won't. Because if there's something I think is better to do, then I'll do it. Or in the case of adultery, if there's someone better to have, then by golly, I'll have them. Which is why Paul begins. Here we are again. He begins with objective truth, resurrection. And then he tells them, stand firm. And then he shows them, this is what it looks like. Because God has made it so that the only thing which can hold a person on this line to our very end, true to truth, is actually objective doctrinal truth, which is driving the person's internal conviction. This is why essential doctrine must be taught and it must be known. Parents, if you're not teaching your kids doctrine, please do. And this is why, loved ones, no one can give you any internal or internal conviction. I can teach you the Bible. I can do my best to let you know why this stuff is terrific, but I can't put a conviction in you. I can't make you do anything. I can show you the conviction you ought to have, but I can't give it to you. However, it is the work of the Spirit of God and those who have been saved by God's grace to take this truth, stick it in their core, if you would, which enables them to, verse 58, stand firm, to hold you to the work. Now, let me give you a personal example by the Apostle Paul. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is what Paul writes beginning around verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from, the de- from David. This is my gospel. Okay, this is objective truth. And I'm suffering like all get out for this gospel. Okay. And then he writes, therefore. In other words, because of this true truth, therefore, here's what my life is. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. that they, t- they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, you see what he's doing? He's saying, I stand firm in this gospel with all its implications, not because of an act of emotion, not because I envy, not because I'm worried about personal performance before a living God. No, but by an act of the will, the gospel's unerring truth is my fixed point, and this gospel is my conviction, and what do you know? It makes me stand firm in the most... (sighs) Difficult of circumstances. First word, stand firm. Second phrase, let nothing move you. And this is a picture of total immobility, emotionlessness. You are lodged in the work. You are stuck in the work of the Lord. You're like a nail and wood countersunk. You're not moving. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. Nothing, nothing. Okay, now think with me. Sometimes in the New Testament, for example, the book of 1 Peter, um, Hebrews in the first chapter of, or the book of Revelation, yes. We find that the people of God are being tempted to move because of intense persecution. So the letter is written to these people who are suffering like all get out. They're losing their homes. They're losing their families. They're being thrown in jail. They're losing their life and they're suffering. And they're wondering, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? I mean, is this stuff so true that I'm going to have to go through this till my end? And the temptation is to move away, to not stand firm in gospel service and gospel truth. So these letters come to them and it encourages them to stand firm in the work and stand firm in Jesus Christ. And the letters, and you know this, most of you know this, the letters are written to say, hold on, 
Hold on. Let nothing move you. Here is objective, essential, eternal truth. Jesus is king. He knows all about this. There's coming a day when he's going to set everything right. And for now on this earth, you might have to suffer. And I'm sorry about that. You might have to suffer for the honor of his name. But don't despair. The king is coming. The king is coming. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Okay. Sometimes, however... For example, in the letter to Colossians, Galatians, and the first chapter of Titus, the idea is that there's false teaching coming into the church, and people are getting confused, and they're no longer standing firm in gospel truth or gospel work, and these false teachers are moving them in the wrong direction, and they're tempted to become movable. And so Paul says, listen, loved ones, and he writes this, for example, in Colossians, Jesus is enough. You are accepted by a holy God, not on the basis of your personal performance, but only on the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. So don't think, Colossians, you need a special diet to be a super terrific Christian. Don't think you need to hear voices and have visions to be a super terrific Christian. Don't think you have to go on secret missions for Jesus, or you have to create your own list of do's and don'ts for Jesus to be a super terrific Christian. You are a super terrific Christian for only one reason. Christ bore his body your sins, and now you're forgiven, and you're given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So stand firm in that truth, and let nothing move you. Get involved in the gospel work. Now, are you still with me? Because here comes the hard part. What do you think in our day might be the thing which would tempt a Christian in our context, like our local context, to stop standing firm And let something move them away from the work of the Lord. Is it physical persecution? I mean, probably not, right? Not in our context. Is it false teaching? Well, it could be, but hopefully not here. So what is it which would perhaps at at least do this? Well, here's my suggestion. Personal pleasure and personal preference. Personal pleasure and personal preference preference would tempt us to not stand firm and move us away from the work of the Lord. So you're a Christian family in your late 20s and 30s. And all of a sudden the athletic world and the academic world and the hobby world has broken into your life and has broken into your children's life and has broken into into your Sunday morning. And the work of the Lord matters less and less than you'd care to admit. You no longer have that eternal conviction driven by objective biblical truth that Jesus is first and Jesus is best, which, which public service and public worship clearly expresses and God's word clearly explains. Or you're in your late 40s or early 50s and the retirement thing is, is looming large and all of a sudden you have this intense focus on the things of earth rather than the work of heaven. And for some, you have more money than you used to and the kids are gone. So you can go away a whole lot more weekends than you could in the past. So the work of the Lord becomes a matter of personal preference and only a matter of feeling or of circumstance or of opportunity. If it fits, then we'll do it. If not, we won't. Personal preference and no internal conviction, which is driving you to verse 58 action. Therefore, the conviction that the work of the Lord is the fixed point in our life is fading fast. Or completely removed. You're in your late 60s and early 70s and upwards. The things in the past which held you down. Work, family, dollars. Are three of the very things that God in his providence. Might have used to keep you planted. So that you'd stand firm and wouldn't be moved. 
and you have completely relaxed and hobbied or adventured yourself right out of the work of the Lord in any meaningful, consistent way. I mean, you jump in and out from time to time and that's good, but there's no suffering element to it. There's no denial of self to it, which is the explosive power of God in bearing fruit. Why did Jesus have so much success under God is because he gave his life. Why did Paul? He gave his life. Why did Peter? He gave his life. So you see, loved ones, this is why a clear, settled conviction in the clear things of God, the essentials of the faith matter desperately. Because if this is just an emotional deal or, okay, you're not working hard enough, so pick up the pace, all that stuff, then, you know, I would say just, blah. But if there is something that is forever true, that is in my core, that is in my fixed, it's a fixed point in myself, then, as the song says, I will not be moved. I will stand firm in this work. And again, this is not an emotional appeal. This has nothing to do with your standing before God. But it's because Jesus is alive from the dead. It's because there is a resurrection. It's because our labor in the Lord is not wasted. It is because God, through the pen of Paul, beckons us to this life. That we do it. That we do it. Any dead fish can go with the current. It takes a live fish to swim against the stream. And my fear is that we can so easily go dead and let the current take us. Let the patterns of this world take us. It blows into our lives and it moves us away. On the way here this morning, I heard a little quote. Men with no love for biblical truth have nothing to guide them. Personal pleasure, personal preference. Add to that the subjective talk you sometimes hear. I feel like God's calling me to a season of rest. You just call in the moving truck. You're done. (laughs) You're done. Now listen carefully, okay? Rest and leisure and academics and athletics and vacations are very, very important. And in varying degrees, they're absolutely necessary. They help tremendously. But Paul is saying, if you're going to go hyper on something, if something's going to be your fixed point, if you're just going to get stuck in something and overdo it, it has to be in the work of the Lord. Don't bow down to the false idols of leisure and relaxation or competition. Rather, let those things, let your participation in those things renew your energy for Christ. Don't let it suck it all away because we're so human. We know what happens. Those things become the fixed point. And we can't do them, we get grumpy. But when we, get, we can't do the work of the Lord, we're like, okay, well, no big deal. Stand firm. Stay put. Get stuck in the work of the Lord. Get stuck in the work of the gospel in the local church. Let nothing move you. Third phrase. We've kind of been alluding to it. Always. Always give yourself fully. Now, the word always has the idea of every moment. Literally, it could read at that time. So the idea here is that there's no time when you should not give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And the word fully means, and those of you who own your businesses, you'll like this word. It means overflowing labor, abounding, exceeding way past the ordinary. Go way beyond what is expected in the work of the Lord. When? Always. Always. So Jesus said, 
to whom much is given, much is required. So Paul's words and Jesus' words, they collide. And they're an exhortation. Listen carefully. They're an exhortation to the Christian who might serve and pray and worship and give and suffer for the sake of the gospel as little as they can. As little as they can. And they think themselves so clever. Right? They think themselves so clever. No. Listen carefully. No Christian at any age or at any stage in life is ever given the liberty. According to verse 58, they're never given the liberty to say, I've served my time. I've done my part. Let others do the work now. That wouldn't come out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Why in the world would it come out of the mouth of a mere human like us? Always, tirelessly, in overflowing measure, be involved in the work of the Lord. Question, what's the work of the Lord? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not whatever we want it to be. Now, it's true that all of our days and all of our work in those days are the Lord's work insofar as we do it unto the Lord and not to ourselves or to men. That's Colossians 3. But here, Paul's concern is clearly the work of the gospel. The great urgency of seeing unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. To see the work of Christ established in Corinth by the church. Established in advance. So Paul says, since Jesus Christ is Lord and since he's alive, I want you to always be fully involved in the work of the Lord. Always fully involved in the work of the Lord. It begs the question, right? A question that a person like me has to ask. Are you fully involved in the work of the Lord always? Are you fully involved in the work of the Lord? Are you a gospel man? Are you a gospel girl? Are you tied to the local church to that end? And if you're not, would you be prepared to get fully involved? Would you make service and worship and prayer and gospel ministry tied to the local church your chief concern? Because that's what verse 58 is saying. Now you know and I know that we live in a time where so much of what comes to us is tied to pleasure and enjoyment. And so when you read a text like this, and you have to preach a text like this, and you begin to honestly think about the implications, our flesh fights this. I would be very, very surprised if some of you are thinking in your mind right now, this guy could be wrong. Because our flesh fights this. We expect pleasure and enjoyment. And Paul uses words like work and labor. And by the way, the word labor there means you work to the point of exhaustion. And furthermore, when a church, when a church buys into the pleasure and the preference stuff, then that begins to set the pace of ministry in the church. And God's revealed will is no longer yielded to. And now it's according to the world how we set the pace in the church. It's according to the world. Now, loved ones, you're bright enough to know the answer to this question. Do you think the world cares about the work of the Lord? Do you really think that when it sets itself up to invade public service and invade public worship in the Lord? Think. Think. Give yourself always to the work of the Lord. Always. When you're young or when you're old. When you enjoy it. Or you're not enjoying it. When you think you can get a great, you're doing a great job and you think you're doing a bad one. When people are cheering you on and when they are not. Always. Always. You see, the Bible is far more concerned with us rusting out than 
burning out. In fact, if you did a search of the phrase uh, burnout, that's like a 20th, late 20th century phrase, which means we kind of just, you know, we just made it up. Give up your small ambitions, says the Puritans, for the issues of seeing others into heaven. Only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else, as nice as it is, it's a fading memory. It is a fading memory. Okay, question number one. Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to his family. These are the beloved. What must they do? They must always fully give themselves to the work of the Lord. Okay, then why must they do it? Final point. The answer is clear. It's terrific. Simple, right? Everything we do in the Lord is not wasted. That's what he says. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So people say, right, we know this, well, it's just a local church, and it's just opening a door. It's just passing out a thing. It's just wiping a table. It's just cooking a meal. It's just teaching a little one. It's just wiping the baby's nose. It's just wiping the baby's bottoms in the nursery. It's just a Sunday morning. We have so many of them. It's just a prayer thing on Sunday night. It's just worshiping Jesus in a fairly average place. It's just a couple of hundred people. It's just, it's just, it's just. Loved ones, if we say that, if we think that, and then it begins to make us tank in our work, then we might as well be saying, it's just Jesus Christ. Because I can guarantee you, everything that I just listed off is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. The visible church is the visible expression to the world of the servant nature of Jesus Christ in its truth. And here's the good thing. Nothing we do in the work of the Lord is in vain. It will always have an effect. It will never be lacking in in results. Will you let me take about 10 seconds to encourage myself? So through the week, I was thinking, this is a really hard sermon to preach on July 4th weekend. You You could get killed for stuff like this in some places. And so I thought to myself, maybe I should... Get to the sermon file, right? Get a file. Sermon number 49. There you go. Sermon number 49. I'll pepper it with a few new stories and get us some fun things on the internet. And we'll just get out of here in a good amount of time. And everybody will be going happy and no one will be mad at me. It'll be great. I'll take my walk that I usually take on Sunday and have no anxiety at all. Just happy walk. And I love you, Nicole. Do you love me? Oh, this is great. Nothing you do in the work of the Lord as you do it unto the Lord has, has a wasted value to it. It all has effect. All of it. Every nanosecond of it. So let's say we're hoodwinked by the glamour and the glitz and the world stuff. And we think, you know what? Okay, I can take it along with me. But what happens? Well, original sin happens and those things become our fixed point. And those are things that we can't do without And the work of the Lord is like subset to that. And so that stuff becomes unmovable and the work of the Lord becomes movable and sometimes even seasonal. So then when we don't see what we think we ought to see or we don't feel what we think we ought to feel or it's not working the way that we want, we begin then to assess things by size and by scope and we can so easily and on a personal level, uh, individual level, justify to reduce or remove ourselves from the work of the Lord, thinking, what a waste. What a waste of time. And, and don't you want to move up in the world, son? And don't you want to see the world, ma'am? 
Paul says, no, (laughs) no way. I want to get stuck in the work of the Lord for the Lord. Because Paul says, God says, my work, my labor, my fatigue in the Lord is never, ever wasted as it would be if there was no resurrection. And loved ones, I know nothing like this anywhere else in the world. We get to heaven because of Christ's righteousness. Thank God we get our rewards in heaven according to our obedience. Verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray together as we prepare to sing a song and take communion this morning. Oh, Father, please help us in these things. Please work in us in such a way that verse 58 becomes the highest place in our thinking and in our living. Keep us from neglecting this verse. May we delight in it. May we find our joy and our energy and our true convictions and and light at the 15th chapter's truth. May the pace and the bend of our life be changed to the pace and the bend that you would like, that you would be our preference. And in order for that to happen, you're going to have to do everything. So please, Father, work in us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. Amen.